Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. I'm your host, Fritz Busselmaker, and today I am honored and delighted to have a conversation with Lafa Reddy. Lafa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Fritz. I'm delighted to be here. Allow me to introduce you to the audience. You are the co-chair of the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, a former Deputy National Security Advisor of India. Uh, you sit on several organizations and think tanks, both globally and India. Uh, you are a former diplomat and ambassador, and you call yourself a warrior for cyber peace. That's right. Yes. Now... Actually, I want to start off this conversation with the last one. If I may be so bold, you don't come across as the typical cyber warrior or the warrior for cyber peace. So there's a journey you follow to get there. And I'm very interested for you to share that journey with us. Well, uh, you know, Fritz, as you know, I was a diplomat for most of my uh, career. In fact, for all of my career, except for the last two years, because I worked for 36 years in the Indian Foreign Service. Like everyone else, I climbed the rungs. You know, I went from third secretary to second secretary to first secretary to counselor uh, to the deputy ambassador to the ambassador. And then uh, finally, the senior most position in our ministry, one of the senior most, which is uh, being secretary in charge of bilateral relations with 65 countries. Uh, normally in India, on all the civil services, including the foreign service, we retire at age 60. <clears throat> in my case, I uh, was asked to stay on for two years and to join the National Security Council, which I was happy to do. Uh, the head of the National Security Council at that time was Mr. Shivshankar Menon, who had himself uh, been the foreign secretary and when one of the first tasks he assigned me as the as the deputy uh, to himself was to take a look at what was happening in cyber security so I said you know am I the right person sir because I'm not really an expert on cyber technology or on cyber security he said no there are a lot of experts there are a lot of technical experts but what I need is some of your diplomatic skills to get everybody to sit around the same table and talk and to get everybody to communicate. <clears throat> and he says that is what negotiations, um, communications, building up friendships, building up understanding is the essence of diplomacy. And that's why I want a diplomat to do this rather than a technology expert because technology experts <clears throat> we'll get bogged down in the technical aspects of the discussion. What we need is overall agreement so that we can yeah. come to some conclusions. Yeah. So uh, that was sorry, the story uh, of how uh, I began. Yeah. Okay, now I understand uh, that thinking and the rationale. At the same time, uh, I can imagine, and again, uh, maybe a very bold assumption here, if you have somebody walking through the room with a group of cybersecurity experts, and there's some say, uh, I am a uh, diplomat. Um, 
how do you build up credit? How do you get people then to start to listen to you? If you uh, was that an issue? I think I think the most important thing is to be humble. You know, don't be arrogant. Don't say I'm a national security person, so you have to listen to me because I'm the boss. If you start with that attitude, the conversation is doomed before it even begins. You know, you have to say, I realize I'm not an expert. I know you guys have a lot of technical expertise. But what we do need is a unified team <clears throat> to talk about how we can make cyberspace in India safer. And uh, so can you please... Uh, Talk to me honestly and tell me in your opinion what it is that we need uh, to make cyberspace uh, safer. And what is what do you see as your department or your ministry or your agency's contribution to that? How do you think you can contribute? Okay. And it, it's by <clears throat> holding many painstaking conversations like this by talking to a number of people, you know, because there were at least... I would say 10 to 15 major ministries, departments, intelligence agencies, uh, defense agencies whom I had to talk to. And it became very clear quite quickly what each person wanted to do and was it within their purview or not. Now, it was where there were overlaps or where there were gaps that the problems arose. Most of the things were fairly formal, you know, fairly simple. Yeah. They all accepted, for instance, <clears throat> that the Ministry of Internal Affairs or Home Affairs, like which is like Homeland Security in the US, uh, had to deal with issues relating to crime. They all accepted that the Foreign Ministry had to have something to do with international negotiations. You know, maybe not be the leader of the delegation, mm -hmm. but you needed those diplomatic skills. They also accepted that uh, we had a Ministry of Information Technology, that all the technical expertise should come from that ministry, right? Yeah. But yes, there were, there were some tough battles that had to be resolved. There were some, uh, as I said, overlaps. There were gaps where nobody was looking at certain issues. So... We had to patiently negotiate and it took months of negotiation to and over a number of meetings to come to a conclusion where we felt everybody had got some fair share of the responsibility and a fair allocation of work and everybody knew what the other person was getting. I was not working in silos. We were having joint discussion. First, it started off with individual discussions. Then we moved to small discussions and groups. Then we moved to general discussions yeah. so that everybody knew that nothing was, it was very transparent. Everyone knew what everyone else was getting because that's always the fear. Yes. But the other guy is going to get more than me, right? So one of the tricks there is be transparent. And uh, me to another Absolutely. question here. Um mm -hmm. Being a woman in this, what's still a male-dominated space, was that a positive, a negative, or a non-issue? I personally think it's a, it's positive to be a woman in an at a negotiating table. I have always found it to be that way because, in a way, you can be uh, you can be fairly firm, but do it in a more diplomatic way because. 
you know, this may sound sexist in a way, but I honestly believe that a lot of times the alpha male image is a real deterrent to negotiations, right? Because traditionally men have been conditioned and brought up to want to be strong, right? Yeah. Uh, and women are not <clears throat> popular when they are too strong. You know, women are seen as being conciliatory, uh, sweet, affectionate, caring, you know. So you have to tread a very careful path as a woman at the negotiating table between appearing weak and conciliatory and at the same time, don't make the mistake that the alpha males make, that of trying to make it into an arm wrestling contest and saying, I'm stronger than you. You know, that, that doesn't really get anybody anywhere, right? Yeah. But what you're saying is now, uh, th this is like uh, uh, a lot of untapped potential maybe is organizations listening to this. Hey, uh, you have to get more women out there to do the negotiating on your behalf because you might be able to. Yes, but you must get, I think the, the trick is to get <clears throat> confident, strong women yeah. who can deal with sexism, <clears throat> who can actually uh, say, hey, you know, don't. Don't take me for granted. You can say, I I know my subject, and uh, I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to tell you what it is that I feel, and I'd like you to tell me honestly what it is that you feel, because you know it's it's a tricky balance. You know, you've got to appear sympathetic, you've got to appear yeah. receptive, and at the same time, you have to appear strong. Yeah, you know, you yeah. cannot afford to be weak. And that also uh, is for me a nice segue to the fact that you are a co-chair and that's yeah. designed, uh, uh, so it's deliberate, because also yeah. there a co-chair could also be read as, oh, you're not good enough to do it on your own. True. That's I mean, when it, came to, when it came to negotiating within the government, you know, just within government agencies, I was not a co-chair. I was the coordinator. Yeah. I would prefer to put it yeah. that way. I was not the chair. I would coordinate positions, take it to the National Security Advisor, eventually to the Prime Minister, to the National Security Council for approval. <coughs> Excuse me. And But when it came to dealing with the private sector, because I didn't want them to get the feeling that it was the government looking down and telling them what to do, it was very important that I had a co-chair. So it was when and when the joint working group with the private sector that there was the co-chair arrangement, not within the government. Yeah. Within the government, you can say we were all co-chairs, if you like, yes. you know, because yeah. I didn't make any. I didn't want to make anybody feel that their agency was not important or their department was not important. But in the case of the private sector, I specifically picked one representative of the private sector to be a co-chair on equal par with me and we drafted the report together. So that was, I think, a negotiating tactic that paid off because within, I would say, <clears throat> about a year, we had managed to reach agreement on an architecture within government, mm -hmm. an architecture um, between the private sector and uh, at least a, a theoretical architecture where the private sector and the government could work together on cyber issues, cybersecurity issues. And we brought out the cybersecurity policy of 2013, which is still in force till today, though 
they are trying to bring out a revised uh, policy. So those, I would say, were three achievements that came out of this process of consultation, of negotiation, of dialogue, and uh, being open to different solutions and so on. And all of this was approved at the highest level. You know, it went to the cabinet of the day and the cabinet approved it. So we had all these basic framework policies in place by 2013. Got it. Now, uh, great. thank you for sharing that uh, and the reasoning behind uh, taking that approach. Now, you said you started off as a diplomat not having uh, any cyber security skills. Yeah. I can only assume that along the way you did build up uh, skills. And what would your advice be to any organization out there, what level of skills, what level of knowledge should people have or organize in the organization when it deals when it comes to cybersecurity? You know, I think you need people with both experience on cybersecurity policy and cybersecurity technology. Uh, that's one thing which I learned in the global commissions as well as uh, uh, in government itself, mm -hmm. that you cannot have just the technology experts deciding on a policy because they will not understand the policy implications. <clears throat> Similarly, you can't have just the policy experts deciding on uh, a cybersecurity policy because they would not understand whether it's technologically possible or not. So you must have a mix of both people in the decision-making process, you know? Yeah. I think the <clears throat> other thing which, which I felt was that having multi-stakeholders is always very useful. I always bounce. I'm sorry for the noise in the background. It's a thunderstorm as usual. We seem to be having unseasonal yeah. rains these days. So uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, as I said, basically, if you didn't involve all the multi-stakeholders, all the stakeholders, you would not get a real picture of the many complexities. Like, you didn't talk to people in civil society, you wouldn't understand what were the fears about privacy, about yes. data privacy, yeah. about anonymity. If you didn't talk to the industry, you wouldn't understand their problems about how to make certain measures profitable or how could they continue their business if certain regulations were imposed, right? And you couldn't, you couldn't also not, you, know, you had to involve government because the government had to, agree to these policies, right? So if you didn't talk to academia, to experts, to technology people, to uh, uh, to uh, the governments, to everybody, if you don't bring in all the stakeholders, your solution will always be incomplete. It now, will possibly still not be perfect even after talking to all these people, but at least you would have made an effort to try to get as many points of view on board as you can. It's uh, it's already a, a very relevant and valuable lesson learned you shared about listening to as many stakeholders and components as possible, which also brings me to another question I have for you. What are, uh, in doing this work as a diplomat uh, and also with the, as a co-chair, what is your biggest learning uh, from uh, biggest mistakes or failures? <coughs> so um, what have you seen uh, which, uh, yeah, you need to restart or stop. Uh, is there anything that, hey, that, that actually helped me to uh, get further? You know, I think 
one lesson which I learned, and this I learned from talking to many of my foreign counterparts as well, that unless you control the finances, mm-hmm. the chances are that you know people will not actually do what they're supposed to do. So <clears throat> my advice to anybody trying to build a cybersecurity infrastructure is make it clear that money would be allotted for cybersecurity projects only if it is approved by a coordinating authority. And I think uh, that is a problem, particularly in democracies, particularly in countries that follow a cabinet system of government where the cabinet ministers have a great deal of individual power and regard their ministries or departments as their sort of kingdom, if you like, you know, to use a, a, an archaic term, where they would <clears throat> decide what the budget is going to be spent on. They would not like being in a position where they would have to go outside to ask a controlling authority, a coordinating authority, even though it might be the prime minister's office, even though it might be the president's office to say, please allow me to spend this on this, because what you're doing is then giving them a control over you. Yes. Uh, and this what also, you can and can't do. You know? And so, that also means if you're in that position, <laughs> hold your back straight. That's right. Yeah. You know, so that I think was perhaps something we should have done right at the beginning, you know, to have created uh, an authority that was not only coordinating, <clears throat> but auditing, controlling, and monitoring. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> brings me to another uh, uh, question. Um, how do you define success? And what does success mean for you? For me personally, success would mean achieving a task uh, well and with the best possible outcome. I would not say a perfect outcome because we don't live in a perfect world, but to try to reach the best possible outcome in any situation in which I find myself, which is challenging. That to me is success. Good. So thank you for that. And uh, related to that, um, what are your... Can you recognize in hindsight what key milestones were in your career so far or in your life? So, hey, those have been very influential in where I am today. You know, I would say I inherited a very strong work ethic from my family because my grandparents were both, my grandfathers, I should say, were both very strong men Mm -hmm. who were very successful in their own fields. They were both freedom fighters. One grandfather was a famous film director. One grandfather was a famous uh, a lawyer who also was a freedom fighter, uh, you know, for the, for the struggle for India's freedom. And uh, one of them went on to help to write the constitution of our country. So they gave me, my grandfather who wrote the constitution, yeah. my father's father, gave me a sense of how valuable independence was how cherished the constitution should be in our daily lives. My other grandfather taught me to be creative, to to have compassion, because he was a very compassionate man, you know, and very generous man. And uh, so I like to think I learned a lot from both of them. And strangely, my role models were mainly 
the men in my life when I was growing yeah. up, you know. And perhaps it's because my mother died when I was very young. My grandmothers perhaps were too traditional and too, uh, you know, old-fashioned in a way for me to adopt them as role models. But the men, in, you know, it was a very unfair world. We're talking about the uh, early part of the century. The men went on to have careers and be successful. And that attracted me. You know, I didn't yeah. really like yeah. being a housewife or being, you know, the idea of just being married and having kids and being a housewife and just spending all my time planning wardrobes and things wasn't something that excited me. Yeah. But what my grandparents, grandfathers did excited me. I loved and respected my grandmothers and my mother as long as she was alive. Yeah. But it was both of them and my father. My father was a huge role model. And uh, till today, my brother plays a very important role in my life. So somehow, I don't know where and how along the way, I think I developed a more, uh, I wouldn't like to say masculine side, but a stronger side to my personality where people who achieved and even today, you know, even my women friends whom I'm very close to and whom I really cherish are all women who are very successful in their fields. I, for me, uh, you know, a lot of them have made mistakes. They've, they've faltered along the way, but they've always picked themselves up and got on with it. And that, that I think, is a huge quality of what makes you continue to strive, continue to learn, continue to improve. Till today, I'm learning. And I mean that most sincerely. I'm still learning new facts, new ways yeah. of negotiating, new ways of talking. You know. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's one of the things which allows you to grow. Indeed, uh, be curious, keep on learning. Um, yeah. But I also sense that you have grown in a role model yourself uh, yeah. for your environment. Is that something you recognize? I do. Yeah. In fact, I welcome every opportunity to go out and talk to young people for that reason. Yeah. I want to show young people, particularly young women, but I would not exclude young men, that no matter where you're coming from and what skills you have, there are certain things you can achieve because of your passion for them, because of your dedication to them. I also make it clear that you have to work very, very hard. You have to be prepared to start at the bottom. <coughs> Excuse me. There may not be shortcuts yeah. uh, that you would have to persevere and so on. And uh, most of the time, I find it very inspiring to talk to young people. Till today, I'm teaching a class on foreign policy and diplomacy at a think tank here yeah. in Bangalore. And I do it online at the moment, but I'm hoping very soon we can start doing it in uh, person. Okay. And uh, I enjoy that very much. I love interacting with younger people because they give you a sense of hope and optimism yeah. and uh, they are very confident compared to my generation. Yeah. And uh, can anybody sign up for those uh, classes or do you have to? Well, this okay. is an, an institution called Takshashila and this is a particular course <coughs> which is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> designed for mid-level professionals, you know, who are working yep. in government, yep. who are working in the armed forces, who are working just as students of international relations and they are studying what they call public public policy yep. Yep. and strategic yep. studies. Okay. Now, so they get, arrange a series of lectures and one of them is by me. Great. Yeah. 
Now, what I'm hearing, you're optimistic uh, about that next uh, generation to come. Um, are they also realistic in their ambitions? They're very aspirational, you know, which I think is understandable mm -hmm. because they've grown up in a different India from the India I grew up in. In the India I grew up in, you were just glad to have the opportunity to have a good career. And you tended yeah. to think that once you found a good job, you had to stay in that job yeah. and work in it all your life. These kids are totally different. They think that it, there's nothing wrong with hopping companies or hopping professions, yeah. changing courses midstream in the university. You know, it starts right from that level, right? They'll start oh. off studying economics and say, no, I want to do fashion design instead, whatever, you know. And then the same thing applies when they start looking for jobs. They might work for Google one day and then say, no, I want to work for an NGO and try to help poor people the next day. Then they might take two years off and go and join an organization like Teach India, which is trying to improve the level of teaching yeah. for poor children in schools. And then they would go back. And then they might become an Uber driver for a year or so while they're working on their novel at home. They don't say anything yeah. wrong with this constant switching of careers, you know. Yeah. So they're very different from us and they're very aspirational. And a lot of them want to become entrepreneurs. It's a craze in India, you know, people yeah. want to start their own business. And they've been successful. There have been a lot of good startups and unicorns developed here in India. So I don't blame those kids. But... Again, we're talking about fairly affluent kids from an yeah. urban. You've also got to inspire the kids who are coming from rural and traditional backgrounds who don't have access to all of this and to encourage them to come out of their shells, to start looking for jobs, particularly the young women, and to perhaps in a way try to defy tradition a little bit, but do it in an intelligent way where they won't be... Uh, penalized for doing it you know that they can actually succeed yes hey uh, Lafan, normally almost at the end of these interviews we ask i ask a question I, what advice uh, <laughs> would you give young managers starting their own journey it's still a question i want to ask but i want to ask an additional question and that is what did did these young people you talked about what did they teach you what did they, what did you learn from them i learned to be more flexible, you know, and in fact, that's what I've learned over the years since I left the government, because I realized you can do a lot of different things. You don't always have to be a diplomat or work on international relations. Today, I work on building up heritage monuments. I work on theater. I work on music. I work on uh, organizations that bring entertainment to the public. I work on boards of companies which are not really... I did. I, I worked on the board of a bank. You know, I'm still learning, still growing. And I think these kids showed me that it's possible to do that. Don't back away from something because you don't know anything about it. Accept the challenge and grow with it. And I think that's what I learned from young people, you know, because they would just say, oh, ma'am, you've done this. So why can't you do that also? Please help us with other other projects as well you know and and then i said okay why not if, if you accept that i have a lot to learn and you'll have to you know help me uh, i'm prepared to help i'm prepared to join this organization as well so the net, net result is which i have to tell you that i'm rushed off my feet because i've joined 
far too many groups. I'm uh, overcommitted and overextended in every direction. And I absolutely love it, you know, because I see many of my contemporaries who are bored out of their minds and who are so um, unhappy because they're lost in a world of memories of yeah. past glories and, uh, you know, what they used to be. I don't have time to think about past glories. I'm too busy thinking of what do I have to do in the next 15 minutes. Yeah. Reminds you of a very nice quote my wife every now and then uses. If you want to get something done, ask a busy person. Yep, absolutely. In fact, there's a slight twist to that. You know, it says, if you want to get something done, ask the busiest woman, you know. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you've proven in this interview, Lapa, that uh, a woman have a lot more power and potential than we, uh, yeah, uh, we we give credit for, and you are, I'd say, the the I could say a great example of somebody who has uh, proven that. Uh, so with that, I want to thank you so much for sharing your your insights, uh, your experience, some very valuable lessons for everybody uh, listening or watching to this uh, the brand call you interview. So Lafa again. Thank you so much for our discussion. Thank you so much, Fitz. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.